This is VOCM News Talk. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. Here's VOCM News Talk host Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Back in the saddle after a little sojourn, I suppose, uh, sidelined by what appears to be a sinus infection. So if I don't sound entirely uh, the same, that's because I'm not. (laughs) I am uh, feeling quite congested. Sorry about that. So it's over the last few days, of course, uh, while I was at home uh, convalescing, that uh, I received a phone call from Brian Medore informing me of the passing of one of our uh, longest uh, colleagues, um, Vince Gallant. Very sad to hear the news. Um, Vince, of course, uh, was a a mainstay on VOCM and a constant in my radio career until his uh, retirement just a few short years ago. Uh, And I remember when um, uh, it became clear that he was, in fact, retiring. Well, I blubbered like a baby. I cried. I couldn't keep it together, could I, Greg? I was, uh, uh, I couldn't be in his presence. I couldn't uh, speak to him. I uh, was absolutely devastated uh, that uh, that constant that had been in my radio career life uh, was leaving my immediate presence. And now he's left all of our presence and uh, he's broadcasting in a better place, as they say. But uh, certainly someone who had a big impact on my life as a broadcaster and uh, um, taught me things that um, I'll never forget and uh, taught me many other things that were unexpected uh, because he had such a huge uh, life experience. So um, my deepest condolences to Lil and his daughter and his uh, family and extended family, Uh, someone who uh, left a very deep impression here on Newfoundland and Labrador, his adopted home. Uh, No doubt I had heard him many, many moons ago when he was broadcasting on CJAD. I don't have a conscious memory of it, but I know I did because uh, I used to listen to the radio even as a small child when I lived in Montreal. So um, my deepest condolences to all. Well, also during my confinement, uh, both uh, caused by illness and by the weather, uh, we've had a nasty few days this week just when crews start to clear up the roads and you think you finally have a handle on your driveway, boom, another storm is on its way. Meteorologist David Neal of the Environment Canada Weather Office in Gander has the bad news. Well, David, you dug out in Gander yet? Uh, it's uh, it's an ongoing uh, ongoing task, but yeah, just uh, getting there, uh, getting there now. Just uh, I've seen a lot of driveways around that are at least getting uh, c- kind of cleaned out and starting to see some bare pavement over this way. So it's uh, uh, so it's going it's going well so far, but it's been a been a been a bit of work for sure. Well, indeed, and I lived in Gander for years, uh, and the people of Gander are used to snow. But how much did uh, the Gander area receive? Uh, well, we do have um, a couple of reports there, but j- roughly uh, in the neighborhood of 80 centimeters uh, overall uh, over the uh, the roughly two day period. So, pretty good, uh, pretty good dose of uh, of the white stuff. That's for sure. To uh, uh, basically uh, been been a couple of days of just uh, straight cleaning up and, uh, and pretty some pretty uh, wild conditions for a while there. How about the Avalon? 
So looking at the Avalon, quite a few uh, reports, uh, highly variable uh, uh, amounts. Um, basically, uh, we uh, uh, now have a uh, a storm summary up on the uh, up on our website. Uh, seeing some fairly wide ranging amounts, anywhere from about 34 centimeters reported in Whitburn, uh, upwards to about uh, 66 in uh, Conception Bay North. So fairly wide range of snow, but uh, some six, uh, significant snowfall uh, across uh, a good portion of the Avalon Peninsula. And tell me, it it isn't so, but we've got more snow coming. Is that correct? That is correct. So uh, we, we uh, take a, a little bit of a breath uh, today and uh, through the day, through most of the day tomorrow. Uh, but uh, in the overnight hours, we are uh, tracking uh, another system that's going to come up. And it's going to deepen pretty rapidly, actually, as it, uh, as it moves south of the island and eventually to the east. Uh, the, I guess the good news, there's good news, bad news with this. Of course, the good news is this storm looks like it's going to go through much, much quicker than than the storm we just had. Looks like uh, everything kind of blasts through in uh, in roughly you know, about an eight to twelve hour period. Uh, bad news is it is another looks like another dose of, of heavy snowfall. Um, really, the, the the Avalon Peninsula looks to be more in the crosshairs for this one, uh, but we could see uh, some some a pretty good shot of heavy snowfall as well for some areas just west of the peninsula. Thinking more of the corridor from uh, from Buren Peninsula through Clarenville region up to uh, the Bonavista Peninsula as well. And that would mainly be uh, kind of developing late in the overnight hours Saturday night for some areas, uh, and then uh, basically lasting through a good portion of Sunday morning, possibly into the early afternoon for some of those areas that are a little bit further to the north, like northern Avalon, upwards towards Bonavista Peninsula, it could see uh, uh, linger into the afternoon hours on Sunday. But uh, another, another dose of, uh, of snow to come. And that's really been the prevailing trend this winter, hasn't it? That the eastern portion of the island has been hit by most of these uh, systems. I, I know the people in uh, on the west coast and in Labrador are looking at us rather enviously. They want the snow. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly been kind of setting up that way the last for well for this past storm and then uh, the one coming up on uh, on Sunday. Uh, I guess uh, it, it's um, you know we do get these storm the storm tracks that come off the U.S. eastern seaboard. They stay uh, they do track uh, in the vicinity of eastern Newfoundland, and usually the eastern side of the island gets uh, uh, gets hit uh, hit the hardest with uh, with snow. So yeah, we've been seeing seeing some uh, some some snowfalls there for uh, for eastern Newfoundland. And I guess in terms of Labrador, it kind of depends on where you are because uh, this uh, this storm that just uh, it just hit us is uh, is still continuing to. Uh, the impact parts of the Labrador coast as well. Actually, um, McCovic up to uh, up to uh, 11:30 this morning, uh, uh, reporting about 70 centimeters of snow uh, over the past over the course of the past few days. Uh, so they're they're picking up uh, some some snowfall amounts there uh, across uh, in parts of Labrador. Uh, but yeah, certainly uh, here on the island, uh, this uh, this past storm and, and now the next one coming up are going to be uh, more for the east. Any records so far this either through this last storm system or or over the course of the winter overall? Uh, well, we're seeing it, and right now we're still uh, verifying some of the snowfall for uh, for a couple of areas just to uh, just get uh, get the final numbers uh, uh, right. So uh, kind of be looking at that over the next little while. Um, but in terms of, um, I did kind of look back at what uh, what we can expect in terms of normal amount of snow on the ground. 
Uh, and as it stands right now here in here in Gander, you, typically in February, the normal uh, amount is usually around 50, uh, 51 centimeters with uh, by the end of February, usually there's about 54 on average. Um, but uh, so far right now, uh, Gander Airport reporting a snow on ground of uh, about 116 centimeters. So. Uh, so quite a bit above uh, above the tippet above normal, uh, and then looking at uh, St. John's Airport, same idea though not quite to the same magnitude. Uh, typically, the, the normal snow on ground is about 32 centimeters from February. Uh, right now, sitting at about 54 um, measured on the ground at St. John's Airport. So a little above the normal there for uh, uh, for the month. Uh, but certainly, uh, yeah, this, uh, this was a pretty, a pretty uh, prolonged uh, time of, of a pretty heavy snowfall for, uh, for a couple of days there for parts of the northeast. And uh, total amounts for this weekend storm now coming? Uh, so what we're looking at, uh, it looks things are kind of lining up now with uh, things coming into better agreement. Uh, generally looking pretty well a good, uh, good portion of the Avalon Peninsula likely to see uh, kind of in the 10 to 20 centimeter range, that looks to be uh, where things are kind of lining up right now in terms of in terms of the uh, the heaviest snow. Uh, there's still some indication that parts of the Avalon Peninsula could see a brief change to rain, but right now it does look like it's a pretty good shot of snow for the Avalon Peninsula. Areas just to the west of the Avalon uh, likely to get uh, some some accumulation out of this as well. Uh, right now, it looks like a lining up for uh, probably somewhere in the 10 to 15 centimeter range. There are a couple of areas uh, through that kind of Buren, Buren to Bonavista Vista Peninsula corridor that could see amounts a little higher than that. But right now, looks like the Avalon is likely to get the, the heaviest snowfall, but we are keeping an eye for a couple of uh, regions just to the west as well. So that looks like how things are lining up right now. Of course, that could change that type of storm track. If it goes you know, a little bit further offshore, could lower the amounts. If it goes a little further to the west, could see a bigger part of the, the Avalon uh, possibly changing snow to rain, but uh, we're still keeping an eye on that one. The other thing to consider, actually, with that storm is the possibility of some strong winds uh, as the storm passes. Uh, looking at a few areas of the coast on the backside of this storm that could see some gusts of 100 kilometers an hour, possibility even uh, stronger than that as well. Uh, for for portions of the uh, the east coast, mainly the Avalon Peninsula, but a couple of spots as well on the Buren and Bonavista Peninsulas could see some strong gusts as well. So, uh, a couple of things to consider for uh, for for the uh, for the Sunday storm. What kind of timeline are we looking at for the uh, weekend storm? Uh, so, what we're kind of seeing uh, the most likely time is. Uh, uh, as we get just shortly uh, shortly after midnight, we might likely see some very light snow moving into parts of southern Newfoundland. Uh, as we get more into like the 2, 3 a.m. time frame, uh, reaching, uh, reaching the Avalon Peninsula, it starts out fairly light. But then as we go through the kind of late overnight, just before, uh, just before morning hours, that uh, sort of 2.30 to, to 5.30 a.m. time frame, it does look like we're going to get into some heavier snow across, uh, across a good stretch of eastern Newfoundland, uh, likely by, yeah, in that sort of like 2.30 to 5.30 a.m. window. Um, as folks are kind of getting on the go uh, Sunday morning, uh, still expecting some pretty heavy snowfall at that point. Uh, winds kind of start, starting to really pick up at that point over over some areas as well. Uh, and then uh, as we uh, as we kind of progress through the morning, really the bulk of the snow over many areas gets out by about noon, except may linger into the early afternoon over the northern Avalon and parts of the northeast. 
but also at the same time, winds will be kind of picking up as well. Uh, so uh, any uh, snow that's fallen uh, could see some areas of, uh, of uh, reduced visibility and blowing snow as well. So it does go through quickly, but does look like a, at least a, a kind of a nasty start to, uh, to the day on Sunday. David Neal, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. So there you go, heading into a weekend with more snow on the way. 10 to 20 centimeters for the Avalon by Sunday morning, 10 to 15 for Bonavista, Buren Peninsula, with some high winds on the back end of that, 100 plus in many areas. Well, when we come back after the break, the old Grace Hospital nursing residence is finally coming down. We'll have details on that right after this. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And we are back. Well, the old Grace Hospital nursing residence in the capital city's downtown is finally coming down, much to the relief of local businesses and residents. For anybody who uh, doesn't live in the St. John's area, it's that uh, big, ugly building <laughs> uh, overlooking the Southside Hills, uh, not too far from the uh, from St. Clair's. The structure once housed nursing students, but for the last couple of decades, it's been open to the elements and serving as a shelter to countless pigeons and, dare I say, rats. The, a remediation uh, company has been on site for the last few months. An actual demolition of the building started today, not with an anticipated bang. I think, Greg, some people were kind of hoping we'd have this big event. That's not the case. It's just being tapped away at by uh, an excavator, uh, which is uh, doing a bang-up job, dare I say. Uh, well, here's Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, John Abbott, a short while ago, on the parking lot uh, of the old uh, Grace Hospital. So today we're ready to start tearing down the old uh, Grace uh, Hospital nursing residence. Uh, it's been certainly an eyesore for this part of town for, for many, many years. Uh, finally, we've got the money in the budget uh, to really get this work done. So environmental company out of uh, Ottawa, Inflector uh, Environmental, has the uh, work. It's already started. They've stripped out all the hazardous materials, including asbestos. So today they're ready to get the bulldozer in and down she comes. So is this going to be a, a one-day trip once those, once those bulldozers hit it, or is it going to take a few weeks? It's going to take a few weeks. Uh, we've probably got a good month's work left to do here. Uh, right now, the contract says it should be all done, completed by the end of March, and I think their uh, folks are on schedule, and we're uh, very happy to, to see that. Uh, obviously, they've done a great job of securing the site. Uh, we haven't heard any issues or complaints from the neighborhood, so we're, I think they'll be very happy uh, to see this uh, come down. I know I'm dealing with the uh, area MHA, he's been advocating for this, and uh, as have the other MHAs here in the city. So uh, Minister Cody found a way to put money in the budget, and I, as Minister of uh, Infrastructure, uh, are here now to uh, witness its uh, demise. Final price tag on this? Uh, we budgeted uh, $2.54 million, and that's what we're going to spend. No more, and hopefully uh, it'll be nice if it lasts, but I doubt that too. 
Just out of curiosity, when it comes to this building, did they find anything interesting when they were demolishing or anything they maybe didn't see coming? Nothing that I'm aware of, and maybe that we can have a chat with the folks, but uh, I think it's been a relatively straightforward demolition. Uh, of course, it's been the, the building's been vacant for 20 years or more, and uh, so anything that was of any value has been long gone, uh, and it was left really to the... Uh, the pigeons and others and uh, right now uh, it's uh, it's truly vacant and ready to come down speaking of the pigeons and others um there's been some concerns from area residents about uh vermin leaving this building and possibly making their way to homes in the area is that much of a concern at this point well i can un- i can appreciate that that comment and the concern i haven't heard much of that myself of late uh and we'll keep an eye on that obviously and if there's any significant issues obviously we'll work with the city uh, to make sure that's get, that gets addressed how important is it do you think to get this eyesore <laughs> taken down Look, if I was a neighbor uh, of this site uh, for, for seeing this deteriorate over the 20 years, I would be delighted to see uh, this happening. Uh, and it's it's overdue for, for many of us, and I'm glad that it's finally come to pass, that it can come down in an in a, in a orderly way, and that the site can get reclaimed. And for future use, whatever that might be, we're, there's, again, lots of options being considered. Uh, nothing finalized yet. So there you go, the uh, old Grace Hospital nursing residence uh, finally coming down after, wow, two decades or more of standing derelict on the site long after the Grace Hospital itself has uh, had come down, including the old stacks there. Remember when that was coming down brick by brick? Uh, well, that entire site, of course, has just been sitting vacant and just attracting I suppose, urban decay, if you will. So uh, with any luck now, once that site is cleaned up, it will become uh, a much more pleasant place uh, to be and live around. Well, in international news, Russia's main state TV channel interrupted its newscast to announce the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny in an Arctic penal colony, while other state-controlled broadcasters also carried terse reports. Russia's prison agency says it is in investigating after the 47-year-old felt unwell following a walk, lost consciousness, and could not be revived. Just hours after his death was reported, Navalny's wife, Yulia, appeared on stage at the Munich Security Conference that Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie and Defense Minister Bill Blair are both attending. She said she wasn't sure if she could believe the news coming from official Russian sources. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says reports of opposition leader Alexei Navalny's death in a Russian prison are tragic and horrifying. He told the audience at a Winnipeg Chamber of Commerce event this morning, Navalny's death is a reminder that the consequences of the of the consequences of not protecting democracy. And uh, U.S. President Joe Biden said Washington does not know exactly what happened. And, quote, there is no doubt that the death of Navalny was a consequence of something Putin and his thugs did, unquote. That is uh, Joe Biden's words. Speaking at the White House, Biden says the apparent death of Russian anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny brings new urgency for Congress to approve tens of billions of dollars for Ukraine to stave off Moscow's invasion. He says that history is watching long lawmakers in the House, and that, quote, this has to happen. We have to help now. Uh, So uh, that... 
uh, piece of news is having uh, uh, great ripple effects around the world right now. Um, and uh, his exact cause of death uh, yet to be announced, uh, if it ever will be. Um, and uh, as his own wife says, she's not sure whether she should believe the news coming from official Russian sources. Um, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, um, Greg, Kane's Quest is a go, and I don't know about you, but I find that entire um, event so fascinating. Same here. Yeah. I mean, I'd never be able to pull it off, and, and part of the impetus have been in that, but the power of the people that uh, that want to do that and glad they're going to try to get it off again this year after having to, I guess, pull, pull it off last year. and Because it is every two years, right? So Every two yeah, years, so. yeah. So they had to pull that together in a very short period yeah. of time. Yes, I mean, it's part of the biggest endurance race in the world, really. So, I mean, that's a, a lot of work to put into that, so kudos to the organizers. But, uh, yeah, I find it so fascinating. I've, I've never spent much time in Labrador, unfortunately. I've always wanted to spend a bit of time up there but i can only imagine what they're up against getting behind those big machines um and and just doing this this big race it's it's remarkable plotting your own course yeah in the vastness of Labrador, they call it the Big Land for a very good mm -hmm. reason. You know, it's just uh, quite amazing. So you have to reach certain checkpoints. But how you get there is entirely up to yourself. Love it. Um, so you really have to know the terrain. You have to know... Um, how to navigate you have to have a reliable machine and some of these machines are whoa they're like yeah. space rockets they're they are. <laughs> and the best thing about it too i mean you, you got to know the terrain and stuff but the one thing i love is that people come from all over the world so it's not just the people who know it like their backyard it's people that are they're mapping this out from far afar i guess doing all their checks and stuff and they're just going for it it's so it's so cool and the people of labrador really rally around mm -hmm. the event and the teams and i've spoken to team members in the past over the last few years uh, anyway uh, who's told me you know like we came here from Alaska. How did we get fans in yeah. Labrador? We came here from Finland. Finland had a huge following last year, if you mm -hmm. remember. Uh, you know, people with signs saying, yay, Finland. <laughs> you know, like, to to the people who are in, involved, I mean, obviously, it takes a special kind of person to be involved in 100%. that kind of a, of a thing. But uh, for them to see, you know, people, kids with signs going, yay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yay, you. Cool. They find that really moving, mm -hmm. and it says something very special about the people of Labrador. Well, it is a go, so we'll uh, have a check-in with um, Chris Lacey when we come back after the break. Um, here's VOCM's Noah Shepard. In the meantime, this is News Talk on VOCM. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. And we are back. And Greg, I heard you mention, you know, nosing out of a driveway mm -hmm. or out of a business lot or whatever. Uh, yeah, be careful out there. You're not going to see no. quite clearly. And even Ken Mount Road isn't widened out to the degree that we're used to. No. Uh, so please be careful, especially if you're coming out of a parking area uh, with the snow banks on either side of you. You literally cannot see if there's any oncoming traffic and you've got a Most nose out. Most have like another 10 feet to them at this point. So yeah, be for sure. Yeah. And, you, and you can't see over it. You can't 
can't see around it. Nope. Nothing. It's like um, quite bad. So uh, just be careful out there. Well, Kane's Quest uh, build as the world's toughest and longest snowmobile endurance race is a go for early March. Normally held every two years, organizers and countless volunteers have been working hard to put this year's event together just a short 12 months after the last race, which was a- abruptly disrupted by an unseasonable thaw. Kane's Quest board chair Chris Lacey joins me now. Well, hello, Chris. Hello, and how's it going? Great. So uh, this time last year, I guess things weren't looking as good weather-wise, at least. But uh, I understand that Kane's Quest is a go. That's correct. Kane's Quest is a go for 2024. Excellent. So there were some concerns because I understand some people were watching the weather very closely and uh, temperature trends and the like. Uh, What are things like now? So while the the temperature and stuff has been pretty good, the forecast is showing for very good forecasts. Um, Ice conditions have been very favorable. We reached out to all stakeholders, um, people in our areas, GSIRs, all the racers, and we got as much input as we could from around all the local areas for inputs and and stuff on the conditions and stuff. Well, the snow levels are definitely lower than previous years and definitely not favorable for a a family leisurely trip uh, when it comes to racing Canes Quest Snow and Nurse Race. It's the toughest race in the world, and I think the conditions uh, are what they mean. And we met as a board and as a as a as a team, and did a few hours of deliberations, taking everybody's concerns and considerations into account. And uh, we've come to the decision that uh, we're going to race. So, will that result in more, I guess, uh, creativity on on behalf of the teams in getting through? Absolutely, everybody's going to have to be more aware of their surroundings, more aware of the conditions, routes that were traditionally be used in uh, in. Past Kane's Quest probably won't be as passable or as uh, as speedy, we'll say, as as the previous years. But um, it's definitely going to be more challenging for the racers, and you know, and what of like. But uh, it's going to be it's going to be a good one. How many teams have you got enro- uh, enrolled? We have thirty eight teams from all over. Yep. So we got thirty eight teams from all over. We have a racer coming from BC, a racer coming from Maine in the United States. And uh, different provinces, uh, different parts of the province, and I think a couple from Quebec. So it's a good range of, of uh, racers. Now, it's not just the race that attracts attention. There's uh, some socializing that goes on as well. What have you got planned? Uh, so we got a fan night planned um, on uh, in February, and we also have our opening ceremonies this year. We're changing it up. So instead of having it at the end of the race, we've done it. We listen to the racers and their feedback and having uh, so we're opening we're doing an opening ceremony this year so everybody that signed up for the race can be part of the, the celebration because uh, in the past we used to do it at the end and if teams scratched early in the race they it was too expensive to stick around so a lot of people went went home and uh, so this year we listened to what they uh, what they wanted and uh, we put the opening ceremonies at the beginning of it so we got a couple bands and we're going to have a a big uh, send-off and it's going to be pretty exciting i think what was it like putting this together in such a compressed time frame it was very stressful. It's been uh, it's been very hard to do two years' worth of work in six months because not only did we have to do that, we had to close off last year's race and plan for this year's race. And uh, it's, it's such a big event in two years. I know a lot of people, you know, there's other races that do it every year and stuff like that. The Chains Quest is a pretty extensive race where it's ran 90% volunteers. And uh, we rely on a lot of people to do stuff for us that are, you know, have full-time jobs and do other things. So it's it was a very tough year to plan, but... I still feel it's going to be the best thing for Kane's Quest in the future. And people stepped up, nevertheless? Everybody stepped up twofold, and everybody's done what they've done, and Labrador's come together like Labrador always has. It's, uh, it, didn't, it didn't fail us as, a, as an organization at all, for sure. 
Wonderful. So everything kicks off uh, February 28th. Is that uh, right, the fan night? Yep. Well, the first registration is February 28th, and it goes through to, to – uh, uh, the, the, ban- the banquet is, Feb- is March 1st, and we, we take off on uh, February, March 3rd, Sunday, 10 a.m. on Tenue Lake. What is it about Kane's Quest specifically that uh, draws so much attention and excitement in Labrador? Uh, to be honest, I think it's the camaraderie of Labrador itself and what people bring to the table and what when you go to the community, the excitement of that everybody gets to see. And the, and the Labrador, the, the terrain itself, like Labrador is a, an amazing wilderness stuff that you'll never get to see anywhere else. We're so unique and so vast, and it's, uh, I think people enjoy what they get to see and the t- t- terrain, the toughness, and then, like I said, the communities and what the communities do for all the racers and all the people that come through. And it's just it's amazing what you see come together from, from what gets put off here. Fantastic. Well, well done, everybody. Uh, and I know it's a little too early to be thinking about this now, but the next one is in two years' time. Is that correct? The next one will be 2026, which is a big year for Kane's Crest. It's their 20th year. Wow. So uh, you'll be pulling out all the stops, I would imagine? There's plans in place, yeah. Stay tuned for that. And I guess you're hoping that uh, you'll get a a, a broader, um, I guess, uh, participation level, like from Europe and the like. Yes, as always. I think Europe this time, they they were in contact with us, but being one year, it takes them almost a year to get gear over here. So in um, in such a short timeline, it was very almost impossible for them to plan to get here and be here in time for the race as well as get their stuff and, and, and team ready. But yes, we would love to see Europe come back and, and even more teams from different parts of the countries and, and in the United States. Chris, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. No problem. You're welcome. Chris Lacey is the board chair with Kane's Quest, and the race is a go starting in early March. Well, when we come back, a new fisheries cooperative borrows heavily from the past. This is News Talk on VOCM. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And we are back. Well, a new for-profit fisheries cooperative is now incorporated, formed to protect and advance the economic interests of independent inshore enterprise owners. Ryan Cleary joins me now. Hello, Ryan. Uh, Hey, Linda. How are you doing? Good. So tell us a little bit about the Fisheries Protective Cooperative. Well, uh, the Fisheries Protective uh, Cooperative, or the, or the FPC, has been incorporated. Uh, it's been incorporated in the last few days. It took us several months to actually put together the um, application because with a cooperative, you need your bylaws and your business plan basically in order uh, with your application. Um, so we've been working on that for several months. We were just incorporated this in the past uh, few days, so we're off to the off to the races. So we have um, the FPC is a for-profit fisheries cooperative, uh, and we were incorporated to protect and advance the economic interests of the independent inshore enterprise owners in this province. So that's what we're about. We're going to be known as the FPC, the Fisheries Protective Cooperative, and it's no coincidence that the FPC sounds like the FPU, the Fisheries Protective Union, which was uh, William Coker's that he set up around uh, 1900, uh, and he did that to, to provide harvesters with a greater share of the wealth produced by their labor, and that's exactly what we want to do. Inshore harvesters need as much or more protection in 2024 as they did back in Coker's day. 
So uh, you're going through this process now. What has to happen next? We're looking for a processor. Um, we have uh, a co-op is incorporated. We want to move forward. We want to move forward for the 2024 fishing season. Um, we're looking for a, a, a processor uh, to handle all of our uh, species. Uh, we've got one. Um, um, we've got one identified in Quebec. Uh, one processor. We have a, another possible processor on the west coast of Newfoundland, but there are only so many independent processors in Atlantic Canada. Uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. So we're in the process of uh, communicating with them uh, to see if we can get our products processed uh, until, obviously, we have our own plant. Well, uh, yeah, that was my next question. Is the the ultimate goal here to create your own plant? The the bar that we're going to shoot for is the Labrador Fishermen's Union Shrimp Company. Linda, now, the the shrimp company is not a cooperative. They're a social enterprise. But the bottom line there is you had 130 small boat enterprises in Labrador that came together. They formed a social enterprise in the 1970s, where uh, uh, to the point today, they they still have a foundation of 130 enterprises, small boat enterprises, but they've got five processing plants. They've got two middle-distance boats. They've got a share in a factory freezer trawler that's the bar uh, to shoot for to shoot for labrador has its act in gear and it's time newfoundland uh, the enterprise owners of newfoundland got their act in gear as well so you're using that as a template uh, pretty much i mean uh, you've got uh, a number of, of successful fishery co-ops in the province you've got uh, petty harbor You've got uh, Fogo Island, you've got Torngat Mountains, and then you have the Shrimp Company, which is a social enterprise. But the co-ops and that social enterprise are all doing well in this province based on the cooperative model, which is one member, one vote, one member, one share. And um, that's the same philosophy philosophy we're going to take moving forward. What about membership? How is that going to work? Our membership is going to be open to inshore enterprise owners. Um, independent inshore enterprise owners and uh, we've had uh, interest expressed from enterprise owners right around the province um, and who represent millions of pounds of uh, of volume in terms of product and uh, it's going to give us a a place to negotiate and trying to uh, to sign a deal with a processor what kind of difference will this make in the in the fishing industry here and, and the changing fishing industry here? I guess if it all comes down to one word, uh, I would have to use the word freedom. Um, we see a cooperative model, the FPC, as giving independent owner-operators freedom over their enterprises, over their commercial licenses, and, and it will ensure a fair and transparent and more consistent return on their investment. If there's one thing that was made clear last season, Linda, it's the fact that inshore enterprise owners are under complete control of the processing sector. This will give a means for enterprise owners for the inshore fleet to control their own fishing destiny. That's the goal here. That's the vision. We want to take out, take inshore uh, operators, uh, inshore enterprise owners out from under the thumb of the processor so that they become masters of their own fishing destiny. Is this a natural progression in your um, view? I mean, you've been watching the fishery very closely for decades now. 
It is. I mean, uh, I've been at this now for seven, eight years. If you uh, combine the years that I was with uh, Fish and L, which was a, a breakaway union, um, and then the years with the uh, nonprofit advocacy association that was CNL, um, and now we're gone into a for-profit uh, cooperative. Um, but the way forward for insure enterprise owners, for independent insure enterprise owners, is uh, is to become a player at the table. And a cooperative um, gives the inshore fleet the vehicle to become a player. And how do inshore harvesters get on board? Um, well, they contact me, and uh, we we sign them up. And uh, I've been taking down names uh, of enterprise owners for the past three months. I take them on all the time. There are only so many independent enterprise owners in the province, Linda, because so many inshore enterprise owners are tied uh, to processors through financial agreements. Those financial agreements um, often come with the right of first refusal on their fish. So the processor that they're tied to financially uh, has the first rights to that fish. Um, we're dealing with independent inshore enterprise owners. There are only so many, uh, but let me tell you, this is a this is a small place, a small province. Word's gotten around quick, and uh, most people are uh, know that an, a, a co-op has been formed, and uh, and they're becoming aware of what it can do for them, how it can improve the inshore, not just improve the inshore fleet. But improve rural communities. A cooperative is all about um, uh, improving the lot of the members of the enterprise owners, but also the communities um, that the enterprise owners live in. That, that's what cooperatives do. Again, look at Fogo Island. Look at Petty Harbor. Look at the shrimp company and, uh, and what they've done for Labrador. This is the same kind of thing that, that can happen in Newfoundland, and it has to happen. Ryan Cleary, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Have a great day. And Ryan Cleary is uh, one of the founders of the new uh, for-profit fisheries cooperative uh, known as the Fisheries Protective Cooperative. Uh, and he's using those words advisedly, uh, taking a page, of course, from the old FPU, Fishermen's Protective Union, formed by uh, William Ford Coker back at the turn of the last century. Well, uh, scientists say that a 280-million-year-old fossil of a lizard found in the Italian Alps in 1931 is actually a rock that's been painted. Uh, I'm a big nerd when it comes to fossils and stuff. I, uh, I love the topic. But uh, after de decades of puzzling over the well-preserved tissue on its limbs and tail, scientists ran uh, UV scans and found that what they were looking at wasn't skin but paint. But it's not a complete forgery. It turns out there was an actual fossil underneath. And the team did find the real remains of actual amounts of bony scales from the lizard's back. I guess you would call that um, manipulation. <laughs> a little bit of um, um, sprucing up, maybe. Uh, anyway, so uh, after decades of trying to figure out, you know, how it got to be uh, preserved in such a, a unique way, they realized that it had actually been manipulated <laughs> by a human being. That is hilarious. Well, on other, in other news, um, the man on the other side of the glass is a huge Beatles fan. 
Yes, I am. <laughs> uh, so this story may be of some interest to you. A distinctive violin-shaped 1961 electric Hofner bass guitar that went missing in London that year has been returned to... Paul McCartney, perhaps one of the most Amazing. famous bassists of all time. Uh, it's estimated to be worth a staggering $12.6 million U.S. Wow. McCartney had asked Hofner to help find the missing instrument, and journalist Scott Jones teamed up with Hofner executive Nick Wass to track it down. It turned out that the thief panicked when he realized what he had and sold the bass to the landlord of a pub for a few pounds and some beer. I bet he's kicking himself today. Uh, that man's daughter-in-law contacted McCartney's studio and said the old bass had been in her attic for years. Can you imagine? Wow. You would, you would never think that something that was lost 60-odd years ago mm-hmm. would still be out there somewhere. Yeah, you were just written it off at that point, you would think. <laughs> and because of its provenance, mm-hmm. uh, it's $12.6 million U.S. Imagine just sitting in the attic. Well, I can tell you one thing. I hope that uh, somebody gave uh, Nick Wass and Scott Jones a little bit of love. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I would expect it after uh, $12.6 million. Um, uh, it doesn't say exactly what uh, McCartney thinks the, of the whole thing. Yeah, I'm interested to see now if there's any comment comes out from that. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe can add more money to that if he finds it and signs it now you're the big you're the super fan you're the mega fan uh 1961 mm-hmm. would that be a specially made left-handed bass or would it be a bass that paul mccartney had flipped over hmm. aha probably flipped it i would think 61 i don't know yeah yeah interesting I know, I know he did. I know a guy who's a bigger fan than me, and I have to text after the show to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I know he did uh, flip some bases. He did, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, of course, you know, as the Beatles got more popular, mm-hmm. they got specially made instruments. I mean, you get the money coming in. But, uh, you know, it, it uh, on that topic, on that note... Um, it is amazing to see, like, and I, I understand the predilection that people have, especially musicians. They often joke, you know, like, when is enough instruments enough? Like, they're always collecting oh, instruments. Yeah. And, of course, each, you know, to the um, untrained, an instrument is an instrument, but that's not true. They have different tones. They have different sounds. They have different feels, yeah. all of these sort of things. And you'll often hear musicians say, you know, oh, I love this bass for yeah. this sound, or I love this guitar for this tone, you know, that kind of thing. And so they, some people might say it's an excuse to buy more. But it, it always amazed me, you know, how many people have, you know, these kinds of collections mm-hmm. slowly building up. They're not cheap musical instruments. And, uh, you know, as companies come and go and production lines change over yeah. time, you know, their value and worth goes up. Oh, they do. Yeah. yeah. I always amazed when you go see like a big act in concert and, and the guitarist always got three or four guitars in the stand and they're just switching them out like every other song. Like, how do you keep it all straight? But I guess, you know, that's just what they're into, right? Oh, and roadies, you know, yeah. got to get it right. Yeah. Got to get it the, right. The roadies that can catch the guitar that's thrown to them from the center stage, those are good roadies. They're good people. 
<laughs> protecting it at all costs. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, if you get it wrong, <laughs> yeah. you won't hear the end of it. No. No doubt. Might from not be the on musician. the roadie tour much longer. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. So, uh, yeah, very interesting indeed. $12.6 million for a single 1961 electric Hoffner bass guitar. Um, have you seen a picture of it? No, I've got to look it up here now. It's... it's um, Violin shaped, so oh, cool, yeah, very cool. Anyway, I wonder if there's any old pictures from the cavern in Berlin. You know, somebody will be doing some research, no doubt. There's yeah. some really big, like, historian stuff with the Beatles that people are probably going to dig into that now. I uh, used to take um, uh, group tours out, uh, you know, for little trips around St. John's, you know, take them up to Signal mm-hmm. Hill and that sort of thing. And uh, some of the people have lived amazing lives. One couple uh, told me, you know, they were at the very first Rolling Stones concert cool. in England. And uh, uh, another couple from the UK, of course, uh, told me that they had been in the audience at the cavern wow. when the Beatles first started they were just you know a bunch of lads playing guitar and that sort of thing but there they were so it's like wow you just suck all this stuff in and absorb it it's just amazing but that's it for us for today uh, we're into the weekend now so everybody have a safe and happy weekend we are taking family day on Monday so uh, news talk will be back on Tuesday hope to hear from you then uh, thanks for listening everyone have a great weekend